0: hello folks and a very warm welcome to the true crime enthusiast podcast the north wales-based true crime show that seeks out and recounts some of the more usually obscure and often forgotten cases both solved and unsolved ones from all corners of the uk and ireland i'm your host paul the creator and true crime enthusiast of the show's title You wonderful enthusiasts are the reason that I'm here now, talking to myself, well, of sorts. And it's ace as ever having you join me. It continues to mean the world, always that you do. And I hope that as you hear this episode, that all is good and well with you guys. Before we get going then this week, massive thanks to the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs going to Andrew Walker, John Cook, Karen Ann Chalupnik, Terry Williamson, and Joe Westwood, who's kindly edited her pledge. Thank you so much guys, you all rule and your support is so very much appreciated. If you want to join these kind folks in supporting the show on Patreon and get yourself a stack of bonus True Crime Enthusiast podcast episodes, amongst some of the other things that are on offer, then like a flat earth believer, it really couldn't be more simple. There's a link to the show's Patreon page in the episode show notes each week, or you can just head on over to Patreon and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast on there. There are a variety of tiers, and it's very reasonable to support. Now later on this week, which I'm trying to schedule around the at-moment, busier-than-usual real-life day job, I'm sitting down for the Ask Me Anything video exclusive for Patreon supporters that I've been mentioning in past weeks. I've had a stack of great questions sent to me by some of you guys and I'll be plowing through them at the weekend with a glass of wine or two so have a look out for that. Also have a look out this week for the Patreon episode of the show that is released to all as a big thank you for myself for sticking with the show and getting it to birthday number two because that's coming up very soon. You guys have spoken and you've voted on Facebook and Twitter and on Thursday there'll be a bonus episode for all as a massive thank you from me. So we're continuing once again this week with the South Wales Slayer story arc and this week does bring the penultimate episode of it. I suppose in one way this episode can act as the finale. I do have a final part planned and be bringing that next episode but I hope what I mean will become self-explanatory. I'm also pretty glad, really, because although it's been a case I've always wanted and planned to cover at some point, the research and writing for it has just been out of this world immense, I tell you. And as much as I love Wales, I will be glad to bugger off from it for a while here on the show. Now, if you haven't listened to any of the previous three episodes in this arc... Then I advise that you stop here right now and head back to listen to them first, or else you'll be a bit lost with various things that are mentioned here if you don't, because it'll be totally out of context and it'll make as much sense as the second and third Matrix films, which were absolute bollocks, weren't they? If you've already listened in and you're up to date, then a quick recap will suffice. We've looked in past episodes of the Ark at the brutal shotgun murders of Richard and Helen Thomas in 1985. Then four years later and only a few miles away, the same horror being inflicted upon holiday-making couple Peter and Gwenda Dixon. We've heard of a terrifying attack on a group of teenagers and a sex attack inflicted on two of the group, two teenage girls. We've heard of a crime wave of burglary and violent robbery. And finally, we learned the name and background of a man who apart from being the perpetrator of the latter rapidly became the prime suspect in all of these cases a man named john william cooper john william cooper was described at trial in 1998 as a one-man crime wave and he was indeed a 16-year prison sentence for his appalling catalogue of theft and robbery was testimony to that we've heard how he was a crap husband and worse father yeah a rubbish farmer and mediocre darts player definitely But was he a multiple killer, an arsonist and a rapist also? Police certainly believed that he was, a belief leading to the launch of Operation Ottawa. But was there any evidence to prove these suspicions? Well let's not piss about speculating, let's go and have a look eh? This week's episode contains descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find upsetting or disturbing. So as always here on the show, discretion is advised whilst listening, folks. Bearing that in mind, please join the true crime enthusiasts this week we're at the fourth part of the South Wales Slayer arc with an episode I've simply entitled Bullseye. By the end of 2007, Operation Ottawa, the sanctioned review of serious unsolved crimes in Pembrokeshire, namely the murders of Richard and Helen Thomas at Scoverston Manor in 1985, the Little Haven Coastal Path killings of Peter and Gwenda Dixon in 1989, and the 1996 mount attack upon five teenagers, with two of them being sexually attacked. It had been running for more than a year. It had been a time-consuming operation even up to that point, due to the sheer amount of exhibits we're talking about concerning these three cases alone. They had to be recovered from storage in each case, then re-inventoried. A suspect had been identified, John William Cooper, who had by that point been imprisoned for nine years for a large number of home invasion burglaries and robberies throughout the North Pembrokeshire area, stretching over a 15-year period from 1983. Where Cooper made the step from simple thieving son of a gun to serious number one suspect in the crimes that fell under the Ottawa umbrella, which hopefully you guys are up to speed with as we've covered them in previous weeks in the story arc, was that during his offences he was constantly armed with a sawn-off shotgun, which he'd used in a number of violent home invasions. He lived a short distance from both Scoverston Manor and the scene of the mount attack, plus not a million miles away from Little Haven, geographically placing him right in the target area of suspects, as these had long been considered crimes of a local offender. And as I said in the previous episode, you do tend to look at the known gun-toting wronguns in an area first, and then work down the list from them. Occam's razor and all that, isn't it? And the more police looked at Cooper as a suspect, the more they became convinced they had a four-time killer, arsonist, and rapist already in prison. But one inch in very close to the possibility of parole, having served more than half his sentence. So the purpose of Ottawa was to review the retained evidence from the three unsolved crimes to subject it to state-of-the-art forensic testing, to see if any link between Cooper and the crimes could be found. This wasn't an overnight process, and police were still a certain distance away from even bringing Cooper in for interview, wanting to have possible evidence to present to him when doing so. So in the interim, whilst exhibits were being catalogued and prioritised for examination, police had spent time learning every single thing there was to know about John William Cooper, from his birth to his arrest in Operation Huntsman and afterwards, his early life and relationships, where he'd lived and worked, his character, his traits, hobbies, interests, everything, the full Tommy Lee Jones bit, you know. It was June 30th, 2008, when John Cooper was brought from HMP Long Lartin to Amundford Police Station for interview, where over a period of four days, he was interviewed at length on 13 separate occasions. The majority of these were account type interviews where Cooper was invited to give his version of events that were put to him, but also were a number of challenge interviews given where any inconsistencies in the accounts were highlighted, giving Cooper a chance to respond to these A wide range of subjects was discussed during these interviews from Cooper's own character and past through to his knowledge of the property at Scoverston Manor and his knowledge of the Little Haven and Pembrokeshire coastal path areas via the bucket of keys that had been found during the huntsman searches, his ownership of lengths of rope or any bicycles over the years, and his previous accounts he'd given when questioned about Scoverston and the Coastal Path murders. Throughout each of these, Cooper appeared calm and methodical, but as the interviews progressed, a clear pattern emerged. He loved going on about himself, and when made to feel comfortable, would talk chapter and verse but always strove constantly for control of the interview. Also, if Cooper was challenged on a point or asked a difficult question that he didn't like, he'd either claim that he couldn't remember or would deny the fact and steer the question in a way only to come back around to the point raised at a later time, perhaps even in a separate interview, when he claimed he'd had time to think about the point and would either distance himself from it completely with a tale he suddenly remembered or have come up with an excuse to explain away the point, clearly giving himself thinking time. When asked outright if he was the person responsible for any of the offences, he categorically denied each one. Now, extracts from these interviews are reproduced in a book about the case, The Pembrokeshire Murders, by now-retired Detective Superintendent Wilkins and reporter Jonathan Hill, a link to which will be in the episode show notes this week. It's been an invaluable source to help create this multi-part story arc, and is highly recommended, extremely detailed reading. The interview transcripts with Cooper alone are especially fascinating and if you head over to the show's website I reviewed the book for the blog a couple of years ago now which is still available on there for you to read. So although these interviews had led to no charges being raised they'd paid off exactly as they'd been prepared to. Having now met the quarry police had the measure of Cooper they knew how he would react when certain things were put to him and it was very clear when reviewing his responses to questions asked him or asked to give his version of certain events that he believed police had a great deal more solid evidence than they actually had at the time. What they did have was compelling enough sure but it was deemed purely circumstantial and nowhere near enough to bring charges and meanwhile cooper was nearing his parole date which would be granted as he'd been a model prisoner on the 19th of september 2008 he was released to a bail hostel in swansea spending a couple of months there before joining his wife at the family home in letterston a small village just outside haverford west just over three months after he'd been released his wife died of natural causes which was found to be cardiac arrest brought on by a long-standing heart condition. It had been the first night under his parole conditions that he'd been allowed to stay overnight at the marital home. Although death was recorded as natural causes, and Cooper had nothing to do with it, not physically anyway, more than one person on the Operation Ottawa squad, however, were convinced that it was solely down to him. They believed that Patricia Cooper had simply not been able to face life with John Cooper again, and having a long-standing heart condition anyway, had simply given up the will to live. It was all but confirmed much later, when it surfaced that she'd confided to friends that she dreaded Cooper being released following his wife's death cooper remained alone in letterston not working other than pottering about the house and garden or doing odd jobs for elderly neighbors and the ottawa team were convinced that it was only a matter of time before he began offending once again such is the nature of the beast they were still working to find that forensic evidence that would be deemed enough to charge him and whilst the circumstantial evidence alone made him in their view their man They needed forensics to seal the deal for the CPS. By early 2008, 56 significant exhibits for Operation Ottawa from a combination of the three unsolved crimes plus Operation Huntsman had been identified and selected for forensic re-examination, 28 of which had already been forensically assessed every which way they could by LGC forensics, but to that point with no further results yet circumstantially the evidence against Cooper kept building slowly. Cooper had of course been spoken to in the initial inquiries of both Scoverston and the Dixon murders because he lived in the area and it was remembered that his family had claimed he was with them all evening on the night of the Scoverston murders. In the Dixon inquiry almost four years later it transpired that he was one of just two people Who'd pawned a ring in the Pembrokeshire area in the days following the murder? An angle that was followed up at the time when it was noted that Peter Dixon's wedding ring was missing, thinking that the Dixons' killer may have tried to get rid of it locally. A receipt was traced showing Cooper as selling a 22 carat wedding ring to a jeweller's on Main Street in Pembroke on the 5th of July 1989 a shop which is just yards away from the NatWest cash point that the wild man had been sighted at a week before on the day of the murders. Cooper had been spoken to by a police officer at the time following up this angle, admitting the sale, but claiming that it was his own wedding ring that he'd sold, as he'd ceased wearing it many years before, following slight damage that had been caused to it after an accident at an oil refinery where Cooper had previously worked his wife confirmed this and the story was accepted because why would it not be if it was agreed by his wife the police officer who visited him concerning this matter also thought that cooper did not match the description of the wild man who was the prime suspect in the dixon's murder had the dixon's killer closely escaped detection even back then Because the image of the wild man was still the best lead that there was in the Dixon investigation, of course, because no forensic evidence had been found linking Cooper to the crime, photographs of him from years before were sourced to ascertain any potential resemblance. Now, it couldn't be a question of an identity parade featuring Cooper attended by witnesses from 1989 who'd seen the man around the Cache Point area, as almost 20 years had passed since the sightings. So the investigating team went the next best thing. They managed to source a variety of images of Cooper throughout differing periods of his life, eventually creating an album containing many photographs of him taken over a period of several years, although none can be definitively dated. Some widely reproduced images from these, from the clothing styles depicted in the photographs, are clearly taken in the late 1970s or early 1980s, and show Cooper as a younger man at various sporting functions and in sports team photographs, of him labouring at various sites from a similar time period, due to the style of clothing worn again, a Christmas celebration in what looks to be at latest the early 1980s, his police photographs taken following his 1998 arrest for the offences under Operation Huntsman, of course, and there is also a shocking monstrosity of a professionally taken photograph of him in the 1970s, posing as what I can only call a white, polo-necked, sweatered absolute bellend. There is nothing else I can describe him as that really due to the awful picture which shows him sitting on something grinning like a Cheshire cat with his white polo neck sweater on and looking like some sort of comedy angel. If I can find a copy of the picture then rest assured it will be on the show's Instagram page. It's one to see for just how terrible it is. All of the photographs do share common traits though. Although he differs in ages throughout each of them, each photograph shows Cooper as being of stocky build, with long, curly, untidy looking hair, and sporting a moustache. Now that sounds to me, arguably, a pretty good likeness in profile to the 1989 artist's impression of the wild man, even though a copper back in 1989 had thought not. So it now became imperative to try and find the likeness of Cooper from somewhere circa 1989 for comparison to this impression. Most photographs of him that police had were all undated as we've said so there was no way to say for certain how Cooper had looked back in 1989 almost 20 years before until one of the most unbelievable strokes of luck surely ever comes into the tale which we shall get to after a short word from this week's sponsor of the show, which is once again Stitch Fix. How does having your own personal stylist sound, who knows exactly what you like, and who takes the time and hassle out of you seeking out new clothes and styles, because they do it for you? Sounds pretty great, doesn't it? And that, enthusiasts, is exactly what the kind sponsors once again of the show this week do. They Stitch Fix you. Started by Harvard graduate Katrina Lake, Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service that solves your shopping dilemmas because it takes away for you the nightmare of shambling around clothes shops like you're in the Thriller video, looking for clothes that you aren't sure about but you buy anyway, and then when you get home and try them on again, they go with nothing and you wish that you hadn't. Then you've got deceptive sizes, stuff that looks great online but when you get it, looks like a Halloween costume on you, and all the while, Your patience is wearing thinner than Mo Farah's trainers. You know where I'm coming from, I'm sure. Well, Stitch Fix gets rid of all that. It takes care of styling you for five minutes of your time in a venture that couldn't be easier to do. I'll fill you in on how it works. To begin you just head over to www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime that's www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime and once you're there you simply register and complete a very short style quiz that takes no more than a couple of minutes of your time. This tells a Stitch Fix stylist the clothing styles that you like or don't, as you're selecting or rejecting the individual visual style examples that come up. It's a bit like Tinder for clothes. You tell Stitch Fix your favoured styles, the budget that you have, and your shapes and sizes, and then off they go to handpick you a nice five-item parcel, the best that European brands have to offer, including exclusive brand items from both established names and -and up-and-coming designers. When they first sponsored the show, Stitch Fix kindly offered me a trial of their services and I was left very impressed. I found the quiz was very easy to do and very quick. My parcel was arranged and delivered quickly with a great and varied selection of items. It was the best clothes shopping I'd done in ages because I didn't have to. What's especially great about Stitch Fix though is that not only are the clothes fab, but the different styles available means that everybody is catered for but also you can try on and mix and match everything sent to you with items from your existing wardrobe and anything that you love then you buy anything that you just can't take to then you simply return it both delivery and returns are free of charge it's that easy and that risk-free and your stylist's charge of just 10 pounds gets deducted from the cost of anything that you decide to buy simple So you're getting a great service, one really catered for yourself and sent to you promptly, simply for signing up and completing a short quiz, but one that covers everything that Stitch Fix needs to know and a £10 stylist's fee. You can have a try for yourselves today and support the show whilst you're doing so by heading over to www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime. Once again, that's www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime and let Stitch Fix sort your style woes for you. We shall now continue with the South Wales Slayer episode Bullseye. So, a remarkable stroke of luck was about to come the way of the Ottawa team and it was to do with sourcing what Cooper looked like back in 1989. Because, during extensive research into Cooper's life and background, it was discovered that in the first half of that year, he'd appeared as a contestant on the popular British television game show, Bullseye. Now UK listeners, I hope that I don't need to describe the British institution that was Bullseye to anybody here, but for other listeners worldwide who may not be familiar with it, a short recap of Bullseye is as follows. Today, if you ever go to a car boot sale or a yard sale or a, whatever, you a charity shop or anything like that, and you see some of the old shonk that people are getting rid of, when Bullseye was on throughout the 80s and early 90s, that shonk would have been luxury prizes on it. Based around the pub game of darts, it consisted of three teams of two people, one throwing darts to score points that would translate to pounds, and to choose question categories, the other one answering them. Three teams would compete in this head-to-head down to two teams, who'd play a game for money and questions awarded to the highest throwing team, until it got down to one team who would go on to, wait for it, Bully's Prize Board. Here, both players would throw a combined total of nine darts to try and win an array of shite that would be given away, hidden behind different numbers. I'm talking stuff like a trouser press, some cut glass goblets or a tumble dryer if the host, comedian Jim Bowen, was feeling charitable that week. Whatever they won after nine darts... They then had the choice of keeping them and buggering off home with their tat, the cash they'd won, and a bendy bully. Calm your jets, it's not as exciting as it sounds, ladies. Or they could gamble all of these against bully's mystery prize, depending on them throwing a score of 101 or more in just six darts with three darts each. Now, where this used to bugger up quite often is that there was a reason for the person answering the questions doing so because she or he usually had feet for hands and the darts were more likely to hit the audience rather than the board. And regardless of whether they won the lot or lost everything, Jim Bowen would still bring the prize out to either give to them or tantalise them with it, saying famously, look at what you could have won. And if contestants did win, it was always something totally inappropriate like a speedboat when they lived on floor number 20 of an inner city tower block or a new fitted kitchen for them to share. However you do that, I mean, do you have a cupboard each or what? I don't know. British comedian Peter Kay does a stand-up routine in one of his live shows about Bullseye and he hits the nail on the head when he says of it, It was shit, but it was great which is pretty accurate really, but it's very fondly remembered and it's still sort of universally loved to date. It's always about on Challenge TV too, so have a look online for it or watch it. And that in a nutshell was Bullseye. After inquiries were made with a researcher at Central Television, the television production company that produced Bullseye, it was eventually established that the episode that John William Cooper had appeared on as a contestant had been filmed on the 28th of May 1989, just a few short weeks before the Dixons' brutal murders and the sighting of the wild man for transmission that autumn. A copy of the episode Cooper had appeared on was sourced, and police settled down to watch it. In the episode, Cooper chats to Jim Bowen about his love of scuba diving, and references the Pembrokeshire coastline as being perfect for this, showing his knowledge of the coastal area. Cooper and his teammate were knocked out at the end of the show's first round but got to come back and try for the hidden star prize at the show's climax as the team that had gotten through to the prize board had obviously got some tat that they wanted to keep and didn't want to risk it and as was tradition on bullseye if this happened then the team first eliminated got to come back and have a go So in the six-dart attempt to win the star prize, Cooper left his teammate a massive job by throwing first, hitting a 5, a 20 and a 1, making a score of just 26 with three darts wasted. Unsurprisingly, they lost the gamble and went back to Pembrokeshire almost empty-handed, maybe with a bendy bully and a pewter tankard each. So police now had a likeness of John Cooper that could be dated to 1989, to a month before the Dixon murders. Scrutinising the episode, the video was played over several times and was frozen at a point where Cooper appears in almost identical profile to the profile of the man in the artist's impression. Many years later, it prompted Detective Superintendent Wilkins to say about it. I'd seen a lot of artists' impressions in my 32 years' service with the police, but I'd never seen as close a match as this. It was like a tracing. Now the comparison really is quite remarkable. The memorable picture I've mentioned in part 2 of this story arc has been up on the show's Instagram page for a couple of weeks now, but following this episode, I'll place up a still with the likeness of Cooper against this artist's impression, and you can see what I mean. It was compelling evidence, yet it was still circumstantial. Police needed that single piece of forensic evidence to turn a very powerful and compelling circumstantial case into an overwhelming forensic one that pointed to John Cooper's guilt. And it wasn't to be too long before they got it. Step up, LGC forensics. During Operation Huntsman, One of the items that had been seized from the search of John Cooper's house was a pair of khaki hiking shorts. They'd been given the exhibit number AGM forward slash 165, the letters being the recovering police officer's initials against the number of the item that was recovered and were considered to be similar to that as worn by the suspect in the artist's impression, perhaps a slight bit shorter though. These were now prioritised to be looked at for forensic examination by LGC, beginning with the garments being taped thoroughly for fibre evidence. As this process was being done, a faint stain was noticed on one of the tape lifts taken from the back of the short's left leg when it was removed, which warranted further examination. Examiners were able to note the exact spot on the shorts where the stain was as the taping process tests the entirety of a garment and they managed to isolate and remove from the stain a single minuscule flake of what was confirmed under a powerful microscope to be blood. A DNA profile was able to be raised from this and the results fast-tracked and checked against existing samples of John Cooper's DNA. Now, it didn't match his profile, but the DNA profile from the stain did match one that LGC had raised during their examinations of exhibits given to them under the course of Operation Ottawa. The sample was multi checked to ensure that it was a match and there'd been no contamination, but it was ultimately found to be conclusive. The blood on the shorts belonged categorically to Peter Dixon and we'll come back to them shortly. No pun intended there either. Detective Superintendent Wilkins took the call from Dr Angela Gallup about what he was to later call the golden nugget that the Ottawa team had searched for for three years on the afternoon of 23rd of April 2009 when he was driving and had to pull over to take the call afterwards he sat not moving for 20 minutes the enormity and emotion of the discovery completely overwhelming him opting to not tell the majority of the team until the following morning's briefing detective chief superintendent wilkins and his deputy sios instead prepared a very short powerpoint presentation for the rest of the team explaining lgc's findings It was a very short presentation indeed, for it simply contained two slides showing the photograph of exhibit AGM forward slash 165. One being the picture that the team had already come to know, the next slide being the same picture, but with a red arrow pointing to the area the sample had been obtained from, leading from the legend, Got the Bastard. They then explained what LGC Forensics had found strong as a cup of builder's tea that isn't it eh when the shorts were looked at again closely following this it was also noticed that they had at some point been re-hemmed very neatly but domestically most likely by cooper's wife patricia who'd been a seamstress the garments had originally been slightly longer in length matching more closely the shorts worn by the wild man in the artist's impression and so the hem of these was unpicked and examined Perhaps there was further scientific evidence to be found there. And would you believe it, yes there was. A small stain was found that when tested using both DNA scent and 34 cycle STR techniques was found to contain all of the elements from the DNA profile of not John Cooper, not even Peter Dixon, but that of the Dixon's daughter, Julie, underneath the hem that had been taken up. So how does Peter Dixon's blood and the DNA profile of his daughter get onto a pair of shorts owned by a murder suspect if he's never met either of them? It was believed that Cooper had removed the shorts while searching the Dixon's rucksack and had actually changed into them following the murders of Peter and Gwenda as his own clothing would have been far too heavily bloodstained and would have drawn suspicion to him. This would explain why only a single set of blood-stained spare clothing was found at the Coastal Path crime scene. Cooper had searched the bag before the murders, scattering the items around, and taken the spare shorts for himself, keeping them ever since. Perhaps even as some form of macabre trophy, so he could constantly relive the killing. He, of course, wouldn't have known about the microscopic stain if they'd been subsequently rehemmed, which had covered it, unknowingly sealing a time capsule of evidence within. Remarkable stuff that, eh? What an amazing find that is, isn't it? LGC didn't just stop there, though. There were now other discoveries that came rapidly. Whereas it had at first been DNA evidence that had been searched for under the direction of Ottawa, now textile fibre evidence was searched for, and again it was evidence from the Coastal Path crime scene that first provided a breakthrough. The branches that had been snapped off to create the screen of foliage that hid the Dixon's bodies were examined, and revealed several blue acrylic fibres that were also apparent on Peter Dixon's belt. They matched fibres perfectly from the composition of an exhibit that had been part of the Huntsman Inquiry, Exhibit BB forward slash 109, one of a number of gloves that had been recovered from a hedge rope near the scene of the West Winds robbery in Sardis that had been discarded by Cooper when he fled from the scene. Fibres from BB forward slash 109 were also subsequently found to match fibres on the tapings that had been taken from Peter Dixon's shorts, his sweater and exposed leg, as well as on tapings from the exposed parts of Gwenda Dixon and her sweatshirt. Also, fibres that matched exhibits MTJ forward slash five and MTJ forward slash seven, which were two other gloves that had been recovered after Cooper had abandoned them whilst fleeing from the Sardis robbery scene, were found on the inside of the clothing of the rape victim who'd been attacked in 1996 in the Milford Haven Mount attack, as well as a single fibre from BB109 that had also been recovered from the forensic sheet that she stood on to leave her clothing for examination back in 1996 and the golden nugget of the shorts wasn't quite ready to stop giving yet either fibers that were recovered from fluff that had been removed from the pockets of the shorts matched perfectly fibers discovered on a surviving sock that had been recovered from the body of richard thomas the one item of clothing that had survived the fire at scoverston manor either that sock had been in the pocket of john william cooper at some time or a glove that had at some point touched that sock had the solid scientific links were building also examined was the sawn off shotgun exhibit ph forward slash two that cooper had abandoned and had been recovered following the sardis robbery and this again was to provide a wealth of forensic evidence The stock of the weapon had been modified to attach a lanyard to it effecting the removal of a particular screw from the gun which had been replaced with a fresher one with a washer attached to it creating a clip. A perfectly matching screw from this weapon at manufacture had actually been found following sweepings from the locked shed during the search of Cooper's property in St. Mary's Park following his arrest for the huntsman crimes and had formed part of the evidence for his previous conviction, definitively linking the shotgun to him. The weapon had still been retained, despite a previous order for it to be destroyed, and the barrels were found to have been hand-coated with Hammerite paint, which was peeling off. Now, because forensic science is pretty bloody amazing, the paint was now removed carefully from the weapon and within the flakes removed from it and from those at the bottom of the evidence storage bag that it had spent years in, minuscule reddish casts were found that tested positive for blood. This was matched to a further tiny sample that was found near the top of the barrel and the breech of the weapon, underneath the hammerite coating once it had been removed. A partial DNA profile was raised from the flakes and the weapon and was tested, and it was found to have a less than 1 in 1 billion chance of being from somebody other than or not related to peter dixon got the bastard indeed after conference with the dixon's children tim and julie peter dixon's brother keith the relatives of richard and helen thomas and the victims of the milford haven mount attack to inform them of developments at 8:21 am on the morning of wednesday the 13th of may 2009 john william cooper was arrested outside the local shop in letterston cooper struggled against the multitude of officers in a spectacle that was caught on video which will be available should you want to see it in one of the reference links that are contained within the episode show notes but was restrained arrested and taken to haverford west police station Over a series of interviews, the rest of that day and a large part of the following day, Cooper was presented with the forensic evidence that had been gathered that tied him to each of the crimes. Most importantly, agreeing that the shorts, exhibit AGM forward slash 165, belonged to him when he was shown a photograph of them. He claimed that they were his bathers. Nice, eh? What he couldn't explain was why DNA from Peter Dixon had been found on them. His words, when this was put to him, were Can I explain it? Well, I can't explain it. But the devious, ruthless mind of Cooper was already working overtime. He then claimed he would often wear second hand clothing that was sourced by his wife. Then he casually threw in that his son Adrian, who we've already heard didn't have what you would call an idyllic relationship with his father, would often borrow his clothes. This hadn't been the first time that he'd brought Adrian into interviews as a possibility either. He'd done this when challenged upon glove evidence also. Then he would deny that he even believed it was Peter Dixon's blood, because he claimed he'd never killed anyone and denied all involvement. This backtracking and tending to outright deny or apportion blame elsewhere carried on throughout each other piece of forensic evidence that was suggested to him. The handwriting on the cartridge box possibly belonging to that of Helen Thomas, the fibre evidence linking gloves recovered from huntsmen that were left by Cooper following the Sardis robbery, to a sock worn by Richard Thomas, to the inner clothing of the victims in the Milford Haven Mount attack and to the clothing and crime scene of the Dixon murders. Now again, we'd be here for the entire rest of the series recounting the available extracts from these interviews. Although you get a real glimpse of what Cooper is like and how much of a horrible, devious twat he is, they're that in-depth and fascinating that they're best read verbatim. So once again, I recommend the Steve Wilkins book. Following consultation with the Crown Prosecution Service, at 7.02pm on the evening of Thursday the 14th of May 2009, John William Cooper was formally charged with the four murders of Richard and Helen Thomas, Peter and Gwenda Dixon, five counts of attempted robbery against the five children in the mount attack and the rape and indecent assault of the two girls involved in the same Cooper made a no comment response to all charges only showing any sign of emotion or animation when he was charged with the sexual offences against the children following this he was remanded in custody awaiting trial because of the sheer amount of evidence that was involved a substantial amount of time would be needed for the defense to prepare their case meaning that the trial of John William Cooper for the charges he faced from the Ottawa investigation did not begin until the 22nd of March 2011 at Swansea Crown Court, before Mr Justice John Griffith Williams. As he was being led into court, a very vocal Cooper shouted to the assembled press, You mustn't judge me, you must judge me after, judge me after the trial. As predicted that he would do cooper denied all of the charges that he faced and issued pleas of not guilty on all counts in attendance throughout the entire proceedings were members of the dixon's family relatives of richard and helen thomas and screened from view a number of victims of the mount attack i say a number because sadly one of them maria had passed away only a few weeks before the trial began Members of Cooper's own family also sat and watched proceedings. After preliminary opening accounts by both Mr. Gerard Elias, QC, for the prosecution, and Mr. Mark Evans, QC, for the defence, the trial was delayed for a number of days on the third day after the jury had to be discharged following a consultation between Mr. Justice Williams and a member of the jury, who turned out to be a former scene of crimes officer. Following jury reselection, it began once again and ran in a chronological order. Early on, the jury were taken on visits to scenes relevant to each of the crimes, visiting the long-since-renovated Scoverston Manor and its outbuildings, and the scene of the mount attack, demonstrating to the jury the close proximity of both scenes, with just two fields separating them. They were next taken to and retraced the final route of Peter and Gwenda Dixon, almost 22 years before, spending a quiet period of reflection at the scene and noting the affixed memorial plaque that's there, before being shown the escape route that Cooper had taken from the scene of the Sardis robbery, with the locations where he dumped the gloves, a balaclava and a shotgun marked out with orange fluorescent markers. Following this escape route on foot, the jury next went to cooper's former home at 34 st mary's park in jordanston and was shown the locations in and around the property where various exhibits that were to be introduced in the trial had been found it was not lost on each juror throughout each scene of relevance they were taken to the absolute close proximity of each to the others Even the Dixons' murder scene was less than seven miles away from the other locations, showing just how much of a tight geographical cluster they were in overall. Also impressing the jury were the testimonies over the several weeks of the trial from a large number of witnesses, ranging from serving and retired emergency service personnel and scenes of crime officers who'd attended each of the scenes or been involved in detection of the various events that have been described, right through to eyewitnesses who'd seen the wild man at the NatWest ATM. Even Cooper's own son gave evidence about his father's character, albeit from a video link, too terrified of the man to even be in the same courtroom. He also testified as to how his father had come in, breathless, as though he'd been running, on a night around the time of the Scoveston murders, with his hair plastered flat to his head as though he'd been wearing a hat. He'd also told the family that if police came around asking for where he was that night, for them to say that they were all together. Not wanting any hassle from the police, he claimed his father had said. But perhaps the most powerful witnesses called were those most personally affected by the events described Tim and Julie Dixon, and the two victims of the Mount sex attack, who left lasting impressions upon the jury, with several members of it visibly moved by their brief but haunting testimonies. And then it was the turn of the forensic evidence one by one the prosecution presented expert after expert who gave testimony about both the circumstantial and forensic discoveries that linked cooper to each of the crimes there was the key from norton farm that had been found in the bucket in the cesspit at cooper's former home the account of cooper being only one of two people to have pawned rings in pembrokeshire in the days following the dixon murder his played-down knowledge of Richard and Helen Thomas and the layout of Scoveston Manor after testimony from several labourers who had worked with Cooper over the years who testified as to him having known the couple well and of course, there was the bullseye evidence the jury was shown a still of Cooper as he appeared in 1989 at the show filming just weeks before the Dixon murders alongside the published artist's impression of the wild man to show the remarkable likeness but the most conclusive evidence was undoubtedly that gathered by LGC forensics. LGC experts Dr Philip Avenal and Roger Robson spent lengthy time in the witness box explaining the science behind and processes used to examine several exhibits that were now produced for the jury. The forensic evidence that I've recounted throughout this episode was explained to and shown to the jury, including all gloves of relevance, the shotgun, and exhibit AGM-165, the all-important shorts that had been such a forensic goldmine. Everything was covered from the fibre evidence that linked the gloves and balaclava to Cooper and evidence recovered from or linked with the crime scenes to the tiny screw that had been recovered from sweepings in Cooper's shed that was linked with the shotgun. Cooper himself gave evidence at trial and over a full day of proceedings gave a well rehearsed account of the John Cooper that he wanted to portray to the jury an afflicted but helpful man who'd had nothing but a run of bad luck throughout his life won and lost fortunes and businesses how he'd been wrongfully accused of a one-man crime wave which he was convicted of and imprisoned for for many years then how he'd lost his wife shortly after being reunited after so many years apart and now he was being accused once again of much more grave and serious crimes the victim of a witch hunt Yet the prosecution tore him to shreds through cross-examination. Mr Elias forced Cooper into admitting that he'd lied during the Huntsman trial, concerning evidence that during that trial he'd denied was his, but had now admitted that the item, a balaclava, did belong to him when the same evidence was introduced as it had become part of the exhibits for Ottawa and could be undeniably forensically linked to Cooper. It was simple, but highly effective. The jury listened in silence as Cooper desperately tried to avoid answering this direct questioning, for he knew that the only answer he could give would highlight him as the habitual liar that he was. And this was the opening 20 minutes of his cross-examination. As it went on, Cooper was highlighted time and again for the lies that he'd clearly told throughout his accounts, that were all highlighted by the undisputable forensic evidence that had been gleaned over many years. After a nine-week trial, following closing addresses from both prosecution and defence, and summing up by Mr Justice Williams, on the 24th of May 2011, the jury retired from court number one to consider their verdict. It took two days of deliberation, but late in the morning of Thursday the 26th of May 2011, they returned with a unanimous verdict. Guilty on all counts. As members of the jury, the relatives of Peter and Gwenda Dixon and Richard and Helen Thomas and even Cooper's own family now openly wept, the strain of proceedings showing upon them, Cooper stood in the dock as Mr Justice Williams imposed four life sentences upon him, adding, The murders were of such evil wickedness, the mandatory sentence of life will mean just that. You are a very dangerous man, a highly organised and predatory burglar whose hallmarks were using a balaclava, gloves and a sawn-off shotgun that was loaded and ready to use. If it had not been for advances in forensic science, you may never have been brought to justice because your offences were well planned, allowing you to evade arrest for so long. Defiant to the last, an irate Cooper kept interrupting the judge to express his contempt at the verdict making exclamations to the court such as rubbish you've not heard all the evidence look at the internet or read the internet you haven't heard the evidence now quite what they were supposed to read on the internet who knows but he kept spouting this bollocks even as he was taken down to the cells to begin his life sentences Cooper launched an appeal against his convictions in September 2011, which was heard at Cardiff Crown Court on the 31st of October 2012. Based upon the grounds that his trial judge had misdirected the jury in his summing up concerning the identification evidence, specifically the evidential value of the bullseye comparison with the wild man artist’s impression. Now this was a strange and wild shot really, as no mention was made to challenge any of the forensic evidence of Peter Dixon's blood or the fibre evidence that tied him to the crime scenes which had made such a strong case for his guilt. Instead, the attempt was still based on his insistence that he was innocent of the Huntsman crimes, and therefore the evidence from these that had been examined by Ottawa should be discounted. Unsurprisingly, the appeal failed. John William Cooper is now 75 years old and continues to this day to deny his crimes, even in the face of such overwhelming and conclusive evidence. As a Category A prisoner on the select list of those serving whole life tariffs, he will never again set foot outside of a prison and is clearly exactly where he deserves to be even cooper's own son andrew speaking on a television documentary about the case following cooper's conviction echoed this saying i think for the public it's great that he's behind bars for me even it's where he belongs he's got to pay the price for what he's done i just wish it had happened sooner the relatives of richard and helen thomas the dixon's surviving family and the victims from the mount attack would all agree I've got no doubt. Instead, they've all had to learn to live with the changes effected for them due to the actions of the monster. For there's no other word for such a specimen, that is John Cooper. Scovestone Manor is today a successful bed and breakfast establishment. The rebuilt property looking similar to its predecessor in 1985 at a glance, but retaining little by our local memory of the horror that occurred there so many years ago. Its current owners have long since moved past the dark cloud of the murders, perhaps being able to do so by not being personally affected by the murders of Richard and Helen. For Tim Dixon, Julie and their respective families, there can be no such complete moving forward, not really, because Peter and Gwenda are still very much missed. Today, if of course Peter and Gwenda had still been alive, they would have been undoubtedly doting grandparents. Instead, each was killed in the most barbaric of ways and hidden away behind a screen of branches and brambles, left to rot, simply opportunistic victims of an evil predator. Each year, on the anniversary of the crime, the Dixon family makes a pilgrimage to the very spot where Peter and Gwenda died to lay a floral tribute to them, a simple brass plaque affixed to a tree forever marking the spot. It simply reads in ever-loving memory of Peter and Gwenda Dixon, 29th of June 1989. The children from the terrifying, horrific attack at the Mount have also had their lives marked forever by Cooper's actions, in what must have been a terrifying attack for them. Imagine what Jane and Susan and all of those surviving victims, for sadly Maria as we've said is long since passed away now, imagine what they have had to come to terms with over the 23 years ever since that night, how could you ever forget that? Or the many householders who'd had their homes violated by Cooper over his spree of burglary and armed robbery, how many people were forced to move or were left with a constant feeling of unease in case the intruder came back over the years that he was still at large? Yes, John William Cooper, undoubtedly one of the most ruthless evil killers locked away in Britain's jails, and for the known crimes that he's committed, is a place where he undoubtedly deserves to be until he draws his last breath, because these are some of the worst imaginable, aren't they? And I must stress known crimes, because I'm not convinced that it was as late as 1985, when Cooper was 41 years old, that he killed for the first time. The level of violence used at Scoverston Manor, brutally shooting a blindfolded woman in the head at close range, then lying in wait for her brother and gunning him down too, before methodically burning down the house and their bodies to destroy evidence. Well, it's just a different level of ruthlessness and a step up in offending that, isn't it? At such a late age too. Then almost four years later committing such an extreme and awful crime as we heard with the coastal path murders of Peter and Gwenda all for the sum of just a few hundred pounds and a pair of shorts which unknowingly to Cooper would play a crucial part in sealing his fate almost 22 years later. In between both sets of these horrific double murders, and following them, Cooper was still burgling prolifically and committing ever increasingly violent home invasions and armed robberies. But are there other crimes that Cooper is responsible for because these are just his known offences? Did he possibly kill again following the Dixons' murder? And even possibly long before the Thomases back in 1985? South Wales police claimed following Cooper's conviction and incarceration that they were preparing to re-examine a number of still unsolved murders and suspicious deaths from over the years that they have on their books with him as a serious suspect in mind. Now I must stress to date he's never been charged with any further murders but he remains a person of interest in these crimes which in the next and concluding episode of the South Wales Slayer arc I shall recount including one that's not commonly linked with these, but one that I came across years ago that I believe Cooper should be considered a person of interest in also. That's coming up next week, folks. With that brings the conclusion of this part of the South Wales Slayer, but we'll pick it up again for the absolute final furlong of the arc next week, which I once again hope that you can join me for. Absolute vile scumbag, Cooper, isn't he? I do promise it's the conclusion next week. You should try having your head buried in the case for a few weeks on end, I tell you. I'm sick of the sight of his mullet and his whiny, lying bastard personality. It's still been one that I've long wanted to cover here on the show, though. Even though I try to steer away from cases that I know have been covered by some friends of the enthusiast on their own respective shows cooper's crimes have been covered by podcasts including ben and rosie at they walk among us and adam at uk true crime and links to both of their takes on the case will be with my own episode show notes this week if you want to have a compare and contrast then use these and have a listening to these guys because both episodes are great ones you expect nothing less from both dear I'll go and put the finishing touches to that conclusion right now, then, and hopefully, as I said, you can join me for it next week. I thank you very much for joining me here today for part four of the South Wales Slayer. Please check out the links and articles in the show notes for further reading or viewing concerning the case. That haven't forgotten to add in through previous episodes, I was waiting till the story was resolved to do that, as there is loads of them. And head back next time for the final part, which is simply entitled possibles i shall also be discussing the arc in its entirety after next week's episode is out so head over to the facebook group for that should you wish to until we next speak then all i've been i still am and still will be paul the true crime enthusiast wishing you guys all good and safe times and i shall speak to you very soon take care guys and goodbye for now